don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. This weekend's All-Ireland Final will not be for the faint-hearted as two of Hurling's oldest rivals lay their bodies on the line on the biggest day of the year. But if any of the players find themselves laid out on that Croke Park turf at any point, bloodied and beaten, they should console themselves with one simple thought. At least I wasn't playing against these lunatics back in the 1960s. <laughs> Welcome to Second Captain Saturday on one of the great weekends of the summer. Hi Murph, I can. Hey, oh, how are you? In the 1960s, Tip and Kilkenny played each other so regularly and with such ferocity that by the time the 1968 league final rolled around, things had gotten a little out of hand, it's fair to say. Hurling took a beating, wrote John D. Hickey in the Irish Independent, who describes eight scandalous minutes, acts of violence that must have sickened every spectator with a shred of respect for the precepts of law and order, never mind the canons of good sportsmanship. These acts would be punished with a punitive sentence if perpetrated in civilian life instead of on a sports field. We have, I am convinced beyond all doubt, only providence to thank that the frightening actions we saw did not have consequences that would startle us out of our complacency. And this is only the league. Imagine what's happening in the All-Ireland. Yeah, that's, that's what I call a league final. <laughs> but what were the confluence of events that led to such a shameful day? How did the counties build up such antipathy over the course of that decade? Is it true a Kilkenny star lost an eyeball in a previous game against Tip? There's only one man we would dream of putting such questions to. The dashing first ever presenter of the Sunday game when it started up 40 years ago go, long-time sports editor of the Tume Herald, and most importantly, Murph's uncle, Jim Carney. Now, I've never talked to your uncle Jim on or off air, and not come out feeling a little better about life, so I'm looking forward to the chat. We've just mm. tweeted a photo of Jim in his prime back in the day. Would you say, Murph, would you go so far as to say that a young Uncle Jim was the sexiest ever presenter of the Sunday game? Hmm. I mean, he definitely was, but you might as well go through the show. Yeah, well, anyway. yeah, I mean, he probably takes it by a short head from a, a young Michael Lester, <laughs> who possibly, uh, oh, to be fair to him, w- might have taken the crown if he hadn't worn all those terrible jumpers. Uh, but if you're pushing me for an answer, the runners and riders, if you like, sure. I would say one, Jim Kearney, two, Lester, three, Sean Olga Callaghan, four, the ruggedly handsome Pat Spillane, and then, you know, someone had to be last. Number five, Desi Cahill. Of course, that's just my personal opinion sure. on, you know, that's just one person. It, it, other people have differing, differing opinions, I'm sure. It, but is, it is one of those divisive subjects, all right. Mm. I number one is Jim, though. I mean, oh, absolutely. On. Uncle Jim will not get the honour of competing for our greatest non-sports person, sports person prize. That challenge will be met by today's main guest, the writer, actor, playwright, spoken word poet. He created and starred in the award-winning Dublin Old School and he's one of the sharpest social commentators around. Emmett Kirwan is on the way into studio. What does Emmett have to do to jump to the top of the charts, Kieran? Could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, the top scorer this year is 81 points achieved on show one by Senator George Mitchell, but conditions couldn't be any better this morning for Emmett Kerwin, I feel. He should be aiming for at least mid-table stability and avoiding an unseemly scrap in the relegation zone with uh, the raging bull of the bog side, Eamon McCann, currently bottom of the pile yeah. on 72 points. If you want to drop us a text during our chat with Emmett, it's 51551 or tweet at Second Captains. Uncle Jim Carney coming up later in the show and Emmett Kerwin will be with us on Second Captain Saturday right after we play a little something to celebrate the anniversary of one of the great albums of the 90s.
right, that's Columbia from Oasis. And here's some grim news to start your Saturday morning. Definitely Maybe is 25 years old this Jesus. month. I know. <laughs> Emma Kerwin, welcome to Second Captains. Important question to start. Were you an Oasis man or was it all Scooter and X-Works jeans in the mid-90s? <laughs> As you can probably see, I'm still trying to rock this little mod kind of lock thing. Uh, as someone said to me on Saturday night, you look like Noel Gallagher. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was a big Oasis fan, massive yeah. fan. Yeah. Seen them every time they came to Ireland. Uh, first time I think it was in Slay in 95. Murph. Dingo jeans and yeah, I mean like a blur or Oasis. I mean, I was that was that was a book here, I mean, I didn't even know the conversation was happening. That's yeah, not to so. say scooter or not, uh, you know, <laughs> seminal, seminal yeah. music, uh, <laughs> amazing tracks. <laughs> now it's important to stress straight away that in order to assess your sporting pedigree, which yeah. is par- big part of the reason why you're here, it's totally okay to hang on to the coattails of other family members. Yes, previous guests have done that, and I understand your father to start was a to a decent level my dad yeah I asked him about this because I was uh, I was wondering because he'd said it now and I, what I found out was he played for Pats under 17s as an amateur or something like that okay. years ago in the 60s and he played for Nookrove Celtic uh, so my father was a big soccer player uh, soccer football uh, he played it um, all the way into his 20s and all my brothers were big uh, uh, football Pats is slightly more impressive than Nookrove Celtic no disrespect yeah, yeah, yeah. to anyone listening Not, you know Nutgrove. yeah I don't know Nutgrove. and I don't know the extent of it yeah, either yeah. you know what I mean so I didn't want to tell too it was like you know yeah. <laughs> your brothers are pretty good as well though yeah my brother uh, Brian was a really good uh, he was kind of sport billy you know uh I mean, remember that comic strip mm-hmm. <laughs> by the Rovers that was in my house yeah. Uh, yeah so my brother like he went for trials and stuff in England and he played for um, who did he play for Pushy Park Rangers yeah. and he played uh, he played for Leinster in hockey and he played Gaelic football as well and most of my brothers did you know so they were all really really uh, 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 athletes and, and you know sports people you know but uh, <laughs> I, I then I played all the different sports but um, I, I I don't have any skill really <laughs> in sports so, so were you into it or was it one of these things where they're all watching sport on the TV and you're they be kind of yeah watching something else yeah, yeah they be yeah. watching sport on the TV I, I was one of those kind of kids that just they kept Kept on putting me on the sporting teams, kind of like you know, just get out there and get some exercise into you know. Showed up, got a medal for kind of participating, like you know, Ralph Wiggum or something. <laughs> <in the background. laughs> but our research, though, our research, I should say, has uncovered something about you. Yeah. Emma, that might not be great for the the street cred. Uh, yeah. But you mentioned your brother in hockey. You were a big hockey man. I yeah. And again, as I say, I was there. <laughs> uh, basically, Glen Ann hockey team did some sort of deal with my local school. They had an Astro tour for something and they moved their club to Tallaght. So you got a lot of young lads from Tallaght just went, oh, here's a new sport. Let's try this out, you know. So I remember m- kind of getting to the... Uh, under 15s or under 16s Leinster final I think both years in a row but again as I say I was terrible at the sport and I was literally just there well that's okay I understand you played in school as well so what was it like for you walking through that the hallowed corridors of some of Dublin's most prestigious and expensive that was kind of gas that was kind of gas like what happened was so they opened up the, the hockey team Glen Ann came to Tallaght and there was a load of us playing on this team so one an enterprising teacher in our school had obviously played hockey himself and went well we have a load of hockey players now in this school I'll just get together a hockey team so I had whereas I was terrible on the club team in the skill team I might have been slightly better <laughs> okay, yeah. so it was me and a mate of mine I remember Alan Goulding he was an incredible hockey player as well and a uh, really skillful player we were put onto this team with a kind of like ragtag bunch of other schoolmates who'd never picked up a hockey it was like there's a lot of hockey sticks in the press there rock them out <laughs> 
let's get a load of matches going. And we joined whatever the school league was. It's kind of like the dirty dozen. <laughs> so that was kind of odd because we'd rock up to all these schools like King's Hospital and Wesley and mm. it's the German school and St. Organ or something. And Killian, just, Killians, is that the German Killians, school? Killians, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But get absolutely hockey there of it. You know what I mean? Like I remember in Tree Rock or something, we, got lost, we lost like about 10 nil or something. <laughs> but it was just funny because you're like, you know, you're going to kind of skills at King Hospital and you see the pictures on their walls which is like hockey and rugby and cricket and stuff like that you know but like there are things you don't really you don't understand what that means when you're a teenager it's just a lot of fun and you get to play against other schools and, but um, yeah it was just a lot of headbangers going around <laughs> from Tallow with hockey sticks going into all these private schools going give us a match and them absolutely creasing us oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah they like they were running rings around us like because a lot of the lads were just like you get time out of skills <laughs> yeah, like, and we were just asking our mates going look there's a hockey team you want to join it so were you serious about acting by this stage like, when did that yeah. come into it you I, were... yeah it was all yeah kind of I would have started like when I was about 14 uh, you know going to kind of acting and then I joined youth theatre when I was about 16 mm. so um, I played GAA as well Like so my friends used to always laugh because you know you're playing corner forward or something and I'd be up there I don't know like looking at a daisy or something <laughs> I mean, they'd be like the ball's coming at you you know I really was one of those absent minded teenagers you're thinking about your your next role or yeah 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 yeah, yeah, cracking yeah. the big time yeah. Kind of, yeah I don't know what I was doing I just I, you're that kind of person that was basically my head was always somewhere else and for a sporting game or sporting teammates that's incredibly frustrating because you know? <laughs> you're out there they're kind of trying to get the ball to you and you're just like I don't know I don't know what I was doing Yeah. but if it's obvious enough why if, if you're no good at like playing football or something it's, yeah. it's pretty it's pretty clear to everybody. Um, but how do you know if you're any good at acting? Uh, how do you know? Mm. You don't really. It's a constant battle and of insecurity, you know what I mean? And and sometimes you are good at acting and then sometimes you are bad. Mm. And it depends really on the role. And I think hubris that someone might have, you know, when they go, I can do anything or I do any role. And a lot of the time what happens to actors is they go into one role and something works and then they go into another role and they try to replicate that same thing mm. and then it doesn't work and then they have a crisis of not conscience a crisis of, of, of skill a crisis of, of their own worth you know so that's why a lot of the time it's a constant battle and then their partners or their families have to deal with that you know so they say don't go out with a stand-up comedian don't go out with an actor you know <laughs> it's like because they'll come back and they're like I can't do it I'm not worthy you know and then they're like yeah. my missus is usually just like oh shoot up will you you know you're grand so do you, do you find that you need I've heard people say this before like you know who work in this type of you know who, who write or act or whatever and they kind of sometimes say I actually need somebody who just constantly tells me you're actually really good this is really good that, yeah well yeah you can't like and usually that is your partner you know that kind of way and then you're going but can I believe you <laughs> are you just saying that because you want me to make the dinner and get on with things you know how did, what, what is your trajectory like how did you get into theatre and from there into Trinity which I guess would have been a leap yeah like as I say it was a big sporting kind of family so like you know sports were a huge kind of part for all of us but I never really found a sport that I kind of was attracted to in a way that I went right this is really what I want to do and spend all my spare time and so when I was about 14 I said it to my parents I said look I'd like to you know be involved not just in acting I wanted to be involved in theatre specifically uh, my mother had brought me to see uh, Blood Brothers when I was quite young I didn't know what it was I didn't know what to expect and I remember being brought like at a young enough age um, to see a matinee and just going well this is amazing there's only about like 10 of us in the theatre you know what I mean and then um, I kind of pestered them until they'd allow me to not allow me but to send me to this I didn't take much pestering they were very very supportive uh, and they brought me to like acting classes but the thing that really kind of turned the corner for me is I like, joined Dublin Youth Theatre 
which is um, a, a place where a lot of kind of people who work in theatre have gone, like Aidan Gillen's gone there and many kind of other Irish actors and theatre directors and, and film directors and people that work in the industry. And it's, it's kind of like a, a youth club for mm. people to go. And there was, it wasn't a monetary thing. It only cost like £20 for the entire year. And the great thing about it was, was you got people from all over Ireland, all over Dublin, I should say. So you could only have two people from... Black Rock or two people from Tala or two people from town or two people from Crumlin you had to have a, a mixture of people from all walks of life in the same place that really opened my eyes because you could write plays there and put on plays and act in plays and you know make things of your own creation and also it's a weird thing because when you're a youth I think you live your life in a kind of world of rules where you're being told what you can and cannot do and this was one of those places where people actually for the first time went what's your opinion? What's yeah. your idea? And I really respected that. And then I went from there then into Trinity. Uh, I auditioned. I that. You, you auditioned for Trinity. That's how yeah, it works. Yeah, it was. It was. And that that was that was a that was a halo pass. Like that was a real real long shot. Like you know, I, I was just thinking about it recently because everybody got their leaving cert results. I wouldn't have gotten in if I didn't do the acting course in Trinity. Um, it was it was primarily you had to obviously pass your leaving cert, but it was primarily on audition. So it was proper, like, kind of X-Factor-esque, you know, you rock up and there's a queue of people there and you do an audition in the morning and then you come back and there's four names put on a board. And I wasn't expecting my name to be put on the board, you know, and yeah. uh, I, I was rounding around town as well because town even then would have still been quite an exotic place and I lost all of my uh, audition pieces walking up Grafton Street <laughs> <laughs> and then went back to the audition in the afternoon. I was like, this sounds like a dog ate my homework. <laughs> but, you know, and they were just like, I think they just thought I was a mentor. When you started inhabiting that world, and you know, we were joking about the hockey earlier on and going into these posh schools, but did you feel in any way like either there was a snobbish attitude towards you or the opposite? Did you look down on any of these people and think, you know, you guys, there was some assumed snobbery on your part that that you thought maybe they were going to be snobbish towards you? No, like... Uh, I, I, I'm not saying it was like some sort of utopia, but genuinely it wasn't a thing I was really aware of. Um, and if people had a problem with me, you know, maybe they did, but I probably wasn't too aware of it, you know, like, yeah. can I? Like, and, um, yeah, like college was, I just kind of thought college was cool because they were all different. As the thing, they had different conversations. And I liked it because, you know, um, they weren't talking about the same things that I had been talking about at home. Theatre and plays and books. What's so you're you're is? actually fully immersing yourself in, in something yeah, that you wouldn't have done you know, before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the one thing about it is that <laughs> I took a job in the weekends and I remember being very aware of that, that I couldn't go out to kind of like, we, we were getting free tickets to go to see shows and matinees and I was always the one that had to work. So I had to work on Saturday and Sunday. So I remember kind of coming to that kind of realisation in third year. I was like, ah, there's people here that get There's like, a reason why I have to do this. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And there's a reason why I'm physically wrecked. And there's a reason why, like, you know, and then you go, you know, and, it, and something that people are coming, that kind of the ridiculous kind of thing of the, like the, the Republic of Opportunity or equality of opportunity. You get 600 points and you're leaving, but then you get up to Dublin and your rent is like 10 grand. <laughs> and, and well, actually, it's not a Republic of Opportunity because if you don't have the money to live and work within this city, then you can't go to the college that you should be going to. Well, it's interesting you bring the city up because I've, I've heard you say that you, you do... Like I know Dublin does get bashed a little bit, but you do actually love the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, yeah. As it is, but there are obviously, you know, there are plenty of issues, and you've highlighted one there. Uh, the, how do you compare Dublin now to even this, the city you would have come up in, say, 10 years ago? Well, it's, you know, and this is something that we've all kind of talked about, and we can see it happening all around us. It starts with art and it ends in real estate. You know, 
everybody was kind of at the, the crash kind of thing. It was like, what can we do? There's all these kind of spaces that we can make alive, you know what I mean? So there's places like District 8, like the Tivoli, or, you know, art spaces that all of a sudden, the place down in a, a Smithfield, uh, artists come in, they revitalise these kind of areas, they make these areas places, destinations for tourists that would want to go, and to give it the, the city its lifeblood and its its culture. And then all of a sudden someone figures out that they can make money out of and they get rid of all the artists and they put a hotel there, but then there's no culture left. So essentially the lifeblood of the city is being sucked out of it. And well, one of the major things as well, like Airbnb, you know, you have a situation where, this bizarre situation where there's private, you know, private residential properties that within planning law are supposed to be used for private residential usage, but are have stag parties in them and then hotels have homeless families in them you know what I mean and this is kind of an idea to people the people that rule us to go well that's just the way things are and if there's money to be made what are you going to do about it so the city itself is uh, you know the New Yorker uh, ran an article about this recently he said may the may the New Yorkification or the Portlandification of your city never happen mm-hmm. and it is happening it's happening all over the world where essentially these places become playgrounds for tourists and rich people you know and it's a controversial opinion. I don't know well, it's a controversial opinion to people that want them, the publicans, but maybe too much tourism is a bad thing. Oh, yeah. Well, they decided yeah. that they decided oh, that Barcelona, Barcelona, yeah. Barcelona yeah. wasn't it recently? Yeah, well, yeah. 42% of the Gothic Quarter that used to house like local Barcelona people from Barcelona is now empty. It's full of Airbnbs and they have a, a tourist strike. You know, so what's the point to come into a city that's no longer populated by people from that city? What are you visiting then? You are the new population. You know, it's a population is a city made up of tourists, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, that's, you know, you, you talk about that to any kind of free marketeer and they'll absolutely lose their top, you know? Well, it's it's interesting, I mean, because the, the fact that you point out that this is happening in, in a lot of places at the same time, yeah. you know? So what can actually be done about it? You know, it, this is kind of an international trend. So what what can we do here to sort of... Stop. I mean, it, it looks as though the government here isn't too enthusiastic about about stopping it at all. It actually no. seems seems to be, you know, fairly happy with how things are going. Yeah. Um, but what could actually be done, given that this is like a bigger thing than just this country? Well, look, it's like this. You can actually do something about these problems. But what happens is you get weak legislation that won't actually deal with it. So, for example, and we're talking about Airbnb at the moment, there's nearly 5,000 properties within Dublin city centre, and Dublin as a greater area, I should say, that are being rented out 365 days a year, year round. They are properties that are private residential properties that are supposed to be given over to workers and citizens, not stag parties. That's the bottom line. But you have free marketeer politicians who basically have this laissez-faire approach to both legislation and the market, where they want to bring about legislation that encourages people to do the ethical and the right thing, but will not actually force them to do the right thing. So they had an opportunity with Airbnb to legislate where they could make sure that every person, and it's not just Airbnb, it's another company called The Key Collection and a number of these other service departments. There is close to about 9,000 apartments right now that are being rented out round the clock to businessmen and tourists that should be used as they were designed for in private residential property use for workers and citizens. Mm. not for holiday homes, okay? That's one thing. And what all they had to do was, they had to do the same thing they did in Berlin, where they made everybody get a license if you want to rent it out either on Airbnb or you want to rent it out on any of these other websites. But instead of doing that, under intense lobbying, intense lobbying from people that used to work for Enda Kenny, Airbnb hired this individual to go back in and asked them not to do this because it would hurt their bottom line. That's what happened. Instead of having robust legislation that would force people to register these things and get a license and put it onto Airbnb and put it onto the key collection, they put it onto local authorities to police this. They can't police that. 
they said they need 750,000 euros a year. They haven't got that money. They can't even have enough money sometimes in some places to fix curbs. Never mind police what every individual private citizen is doing with their property. So what it is, is this, they look that as the verisimilitude of efficacy, as the verisimilitude of kind of legislation that works, but essentially what it is, is, is weak legislation from weak legislators that do not want to fix the problem because they have an ideological problem with forcing business people and landlords to act ethically. And the fact of the matter is that businesses never act in an ethical fashion. They will do whatever improves their bottom line. They do not care about the type of city we have. They do not care about the type of town that we have. They don't care about the colour or the culture or the, you know, who lives where. That's not, they no concern about that. Their bottom line is money. And when a government's bottom line or feels that their job is simply to create a safe space for you to increase your capital or make more money from your capital, they will do that. They don't care about... They care about social engineering when it means getting and making a poor, pe- poor person off social welfare and getting them to get a job that they can't do. Mm. But when it comes to making landlords act in an ethical fashion, they don't care about that because they have a, an ideological problem with governments... Um, you know, telling people what to do with their property that goes as far back as the 1930s and the, the, yeah. the creation of Fine Gael or the United Ireland Party, whatever they want to call themselves. It seems to me that one of the things about the, like the housing crisis here is that it actually suits lots of people. It absolutely suits so, people, yeah. So, you know, it's like uh, people who own houses, for instance, are like, well, you know, if, the, if house prices keep going up so that anybody below a certain age uh, is forced into this kind of rent trap, I don't yeah. care. That's yeah. fine. That's fine by me because this works for me. You know, this is why these, these, these kind of policies, which you can see like attracting big protest demonstrations, whatever in yeah. Dublin, there's actually lots of people going. Well, this is great. Like, why would we want to change this? Yeah, why would you want to? Well, that's what's what happened in the in the boom time. It's kind of like let's just keep this this mm. train moving. You know, and essentially what happens is in order to make things more equitable, make things more fair, then you would have to ask people to make less money. And that idea is an anathema to the majority of people who have internalized market values and market ideologies and essentially see that as their moral compass and their ethical compass. Their main primary focus is to make money at all costs. They would rather get Irish citizens to have a debt of half a million euros around their neck that they can never pay off. That is completely unsustainable. It is absolutely the equivalent of your house is on fire and instead of putting the fire out you just move to another room and that goes for global warming that goes for the housing crisis that goes for our debt crisis as we see our debt is we've now got what 44,000 euros on every head you know so like all of these things it's like a Ponzi scheme that is not sustainable but instead of actually putting the brakes on it and saying well let's create public housing or cost rental housing or you know fair and like you know but what they want is in order for this whole system to keep working governments need us to take on debt so again free housing or public housing or even housing that you would pay 900 quid a month if you could afford mm. that is anathema to them because that would mean that they think people are getting things for free yeah. so it's an ideological battle that we're facing and essentially they're winning because we have people what you would call I suppose the contented classes I have what I want I have what I have so you know yeah and also also the idea of you know the idea of negative solidarity where you know okay the system is bad but I've been through the system and 
Now it's your turn. You have to do it. It's, it's like, uh, yeah. you know, you see it a lot, uh, so particularly in America at the moment, where people are like, what do you mean cancel student debt? I, you know, paid all my student, you know, basically yeah. b because I had to do it, now you have to do yeah, it, even yeah, though yeah. I know, you know, you know what I mean? But it's a really powerful force that people, yeah, yeah. people kind of have this, but it's, it's really destructive for everybody. Because well, what happens is essentially th th there's an idea in Ireland, you know, it's like, I suppose we call it cute heroism. It's okay if they're getting away with a sly one or a stroke, but if they think anyone else is doing it, oh, no, no, no. And the funny thing is that socialist theory, they think is stroke politics, but it's not. It's essentially giving back. You know, like, I have no problem right now. I would have no problem with a system that they have, like in Denmark. If some kid does done their leaving certs and he got 600 points and he's from Mullingar and he wants to come up to Dublin, but he can't afford it. I have no problem with my taxes paying for that kid to come to Dublin and his rent being paid, and his place in college being paid, because it was paid for by me. It's reciprocal altruism. It's not even. That's just when you do good things yourself and you expect them to come back. That is the way a republic is supposed to work. Everybody contributing towards the greater good, you know, and everybody, through our taxes, feeding into a society that creates a safe, liberal democracy that you can grow and live, educate your family communities, people, but essentially what's happening is, is this increasing kind of atomization of society where the individual, the primacy of the individual, it's essentially neo-Thatcherism. It's Leo Varadkar and the rest of his friends trying to bring about a policy of government that found form horribly in Britain and America in the 1980s and the late 70s and 1980s and they brought it here then under Fianna Fáil as well in the 90s. It's the primacy of the individuals. You don't need to worry about anybody else or whatever else they're doing. You just be the best you and screw everybody else. So it's a, an incredibly harsh form of market capitalism that pits everybody against each other in a brutal kind of battle royale, winner-takes-all, hunger games attitude. And they are instilling that attitude and those ideas and those morals into our young people. But it shouldn't be a zero-sum game. There should be, you know, like, there is enough that we could spread. You know what I mean? But, anyway, sorry, I'm going off. <laughs> You're listening to Emmett Kerwin on Second Captain Saturday this morning. And after the break, we'll rank his sporting life. RT Radio 1. Second Captain, First Captain, whatever. If you want to get in touch with us on Second Captain Saturday, it's the usual text number 51551 or tweet at Second Captains. We will be welcoming Uncle Jim Kearney, the man himself, to talk about the typical Kenny rivalry shortly. But Emmett Kerwin is our main guest this week. Emmett, we've been enjoying your company greatly so far. Let's take it back to sport for the okay. final straight here. You, we've already established you're a hockey superstar <laughs> in your school team if not your they will all all the people in Glen Allen I should say would be like are you mad <laughs> you mentioned a little bit of GAA there touched on that. Yeah. you didn't seem to have a huge talent for that but we have uncovered we've, we've heard uh, sorry that you may have had a bit of pace like you, may yeah. have, you may have had raw speed that you were able to parlay into an athletics career yeah yeah when I was um, I was I, I was actually quite good at the high jump and the long jump, of all things. Yeah, so like eight years old and Tala learning the Flosbury Frip, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Flosbury Flop, Flosbury yeah, flip, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's the, for the uninitiated, that's the uh, high jump essentially that you see in the Olympics where yeah. people spin themselves around and jump back. Flip I'm, I'm not they flip their legs over. They flip their legs over. It's like a scorpion yeah, yeah. kind of thing, certainly. Like, because prior to that, people used to run and just jump at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is we bonkers. actually won quite a few gold medals at the old style, I think, didn't we, in the 1920s or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just generally renowned for lepping. You 
just yeah. run and it's like jumping over a small fence or, yeah, yeah, or yeah, a, yeah. a garden wall. Yeah, we, yeah <laughs> like, got that. We were brilliant. Uh, yeah. After that, though, not so much. Then it all went downhill. Yeah, um, yeah so that on uh, sprints, and I was saying to the guys, you know, prior to this, it was like, there was always a thing about um, Santry. You know, we need to qualify for Santry as if Santry was some sort of brilliant, <laughs> kind of like shining city on a hill. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know what that meant. But you went to Belfield, then you went to Santry, and it was like, that was what you were trying to qualify for. That was all our teachers kept on saying, like, you need to improve your times and your heights if you're going to get to Santry. You know, and I was just like, oh, Santry, one day, Ma, that's going to be me, you know? Uh, and then I got to Santry, and it was like deeply, not that it was disappointing, but it was like, I don't know, it just wasn't El Dorado. Sure, know? sure. Uh, but yeah, so sprints, 400 meter sprint, short distance it was, and relay, and yeah, all that kind of thing. So yeah, that was what happened then. Like the game team and the hurling team were like, you can run fast, here's a hurl. And then it just like, you know, they, run off the pitch. They didn't think at the time, didn't realize that there's less time to daydream in a 100 meter sprint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect yeah. for you. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. just bang, gone. But it was that thing. I just I had one of those kind of, I don't know, attention deficit disorders. So we were like, see that lion, hit it. You know what I mean? And that was it. And do it as fast as you can. It was like, there's a sport we can all get on board with. You know? <laughs> but Tess, I don't know if you've gotten your highlight yet, have we? Can you pick out one sporting highlight from everything you've given us? Oh, uh, reaching the Leinster final uh, oh the hockey the, the hockey under 16 but I can't remember and the only reason I know it was there was because I have the, f- the, the jumper <laughs> <laughs> I found it in my mother's recently I was like I was at the Leinster final that's uh, really strange amazing yeah. that'll do it for me well awesome. I'm sold to be honest with you but it's Murph here that you have to impress so could you please go ahead and rank this sporting life of Emmett Kieran you don't understand I could have had class you don't have stars in this game Mrs Weaver what do you have then People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, Emmett, you've been very good at your time. You're a gentleman and a scholar. And if I were here to find out who Ireland's greatest non-gentleman gentleman uh, was for 2019, you'd be set. But that's not my job. I'm here to rank your all-time sporting highlights, tell you the sports person that I feel that you must remind me of, give you a score out of 100, and then be done with the thing. So buckle up. Your all-time sporting highlight, uh, playing in the Leinster Under-16 Club Final for Glenallan Hockey Club in Tallaght, is the sort of memory that lasts a lifetime. And by that I mean the lifetime of the cotton jumper the players involved were given. Not a human lifetime, obviously, that would be ridiculous. But your efforts to keep up these sporting and artistic lifestyles simultaneously remind me very much of published author and sometime Man United footballer Steve Bruce, who of course managed to captain the world's biggest football club and then write three football and murder-based novels, Striker! Exclamation mark, Sweeper! Exclamation mark, and Defender! Exclamation Have you mark. read these books? Because your face lit up there. Because <laughs> my, my mate Shaco, uh, Seamus O'Reilly, uh, he yes. discovered these. And you interviewed him on the podcast? Yeah, we had him on, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. that's how I know, and I read his reviews of them, and I remember thinking that's wild I thought it wasn't true but it is true isn't yeah, it? yeah 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 well I mean they are generally regarded as the worst books ever written in the English <laughs> language but I mean you know cut the guy some slack he was a bloody good Listen, yeah. so for all that Emmett you deserve the highest pra- not the highest score but the highest praise oh thank 73 you points Emmett that's pretty good yeah not bad congratulations and this has been ah, your sporting life brilliant Emmett thank you so much cheers by the Rolling Stones from 1971 and wild horses couldn't drag you away from the All-Ireland Final tomorrow Murph, could they, huh? <laughs> huh? That's good work, Ode. Thanks, man. Real good work. Okay, Emma Kieran, what Party. a great guest. What a great guest. Huge, one of the biggest reactions we've had. Fair to say, 
polarised reaction. Okay. Uh, his divided opinion. Some text, text and tweets coming in. Eamon McGurk says, Great to hear Emma Kerwin speaking in an incredibly articulate and passionate way on second captains on the Dublin housing and rental crisis. Wow, that guy should run the country. Couldn't agree more with what he is saying. Take the power back. Go, Emmett, go, from Donald and Kinsale. Michael Roach says Emmett is talking through his arse. Complete rubbish. I'm sure he doesn't practice what he preaches. Well said, Emmett. The most coherent political view I've heard in a long time. And brave enough to say it too. Emmett doesn't seem to worry about the ethics of the people for whom he does voiceovers. <laughs> well, yeah, so how far do you take your ethics? There is also the argument that it ties in with the conversation we had about how hard it is to live in Dublin and make a living from your art. So, you know, Emmett's not here to answer that one. Uh, well said, at last it is great to hear the truth being aired. That's from a Kerry listener. Hmm. Uh, suitably vague there from the Kerry listener. Dorothy Cross. Dorothy Cross, former champion, no, former champ. great artist, is it? Yes. Emma Caron, brilliant. He should win that RT second captain's champagne. Well, yeah. Yeah. well, there's no champagne firstly. There's no actual did, did, prize. Did we promise Dorothy Cross a bottle of champagne? <laughs> Sounds, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm concerned. Uh, what are you getting at, Dorothy? Listening to your programme this morning, the contributor is the most boring person you could listen to. He loves to hear himself. I want to listen to Jim Carney. That is why <laughs> I left the radio on. I would have switched off the radio earlier only for that. He's coming, he's, he's coming. coming in just, just a second here. Yeah. here with us, please. <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's get to Jim Carney now. Why not? It is our Ireland final weekend. As you know, tomorrow sees a resumption of hostilities between two of the game's great rivals. Still these that reached toxic levels in the 1960s, Mayor. Yeah, uh, the reaction to that 68 National League final that you referenced uh, at the start of the show was pretty crazy. Uh, the article you quoted uh, was by a Tipperary man, John D. Hickey. Uh, similar articles by his national media counterpa- counterparts meant that the Tipperary County Board banned six journalists from covering that team. These journalists, just for people who missed our show, basically were saying this is a disgrace, the violence, you know. Like they blamed Tipperary for the, yeah. for the schmozzles uh, that ensued. Uh, so... The Tipperary County Board banned the journalists. The journalists then tried to ban all mention of Tipperary, not to be outdone. The week before the All-Ireland Final, the Irish Independent referred to the upcoming match between Wexford and you-know-who. So tip banned journalists, journalists banned Tipperary. It's pretty heavy going, pretty heavy stuff. Well, all of this sounds like the perfect excuse to have our once-a-season chat with our next guest on Second Captain Saturday. It's an honour to welcome Murph's uncle, the first presenter of the Sunday game 40 years ago, Jim Carney. Uncle Jim, good morning. Good day to you lads and uh, here we are uh, on the eve of the All-Ireland Hurling Final again and I think it's a thrilling prospect. Oh, absolutely. I want to go back in time though, back to the 1960s when you, of course, Jim Carney, were a caftan wearing Beatles-mopped teenager in tune. But uh, the, <laughs> the typical Kenny rivalry at that stage... I'm mad for hurling as well at the time and football. Yes. Yeah, of course you were mad for hurling which means I presume you're all over this rivalry. Like Tip, Tip had been the dominant team but then Kilkenny came along and th- this rivalry really uh, took hold that decade. I think a big factor maybe in, in my developing passion for the for you know the small ball and the big ball at the time uh, was the arrival of television in the in the early sixties and uh, there was still a novelty about it you know watching the All Ireland finals when we were thirteen fourteen fifteen years of age and of course you know in the mid sixties then I started going to them um, it was a, a huge rivalry uh, an intense rivalry at the time it still is and I think it's the greatest rivalry in hurling and uh, I, I'm interested as well in the fact that you, you know it's two of the big three, so-called big three, who are playing again. And the minute you say big three, you infuriate hurling followers in all the other counties, really, because there was no big three last year. You know, Limerick played Galway. Clare made the breakthrough beating Offaly in the Ireland final. And Galway made their breakthrough in 1980 when they beat Limerick and so on. But at the same time, the role of 
of Honour does not tell a lie. And on top of the Roller Honour for All-Ireland Senior Hurling Championship titles are Kilkenny with 36 titles, Corker second with uh, 30, Tipperary a third with 27. Cork miss out this time, so it's back to Kilkenny and Tipperary. And there is really something special still about that big three, I think. In the 1960s, when you looked at that Roll of Honour, uh, before the 64 final between Tipperary and Kilkenny, it was Tipperary that were the dominant force. They had 19 All-Ireland wins, four more than Kilkenny. They had a brilliant team at that time. And it's fair to say that they enjoyed the, the more physical side of the game as well. They did, you know, they, they enjoyed what was known at the time as hip-to-hip hurling. I think there's regret in Tipperary to this day, though, that while they did back-to-back titles twice at 61, when they, when they would admit themselves, they were probably lucky to beat Dublin and just pipped them by a point, and 62, and came again then in 64, 65. Uh, I think they probably will think of the games they lost as well and deny them the three in a row, maybe the four in a row, maybe the five in a row, and there are people in Tipperary who would say that as well. But at the same time... In in there, I think, and I've always thought this, that it's, it's memories mixed with mythology as well. I, I'm not quite convinced so much really about Kilkenny fearing Tipperary in that time. Now, I know Babs Keating is on record as saying that when he was growing up and playing hurling as a young man, that he learned in Tipperary that they felt that their neighbours Kilkenny, the one thing that, and I quote Babs here as saying this, that the one thing that made Kilkenny hurling people tremble was the sight of a blue and gold jersey. But th- that's, that's a great line, really. But Babs, of course, was and is, as we know, a lovable rogue, maybe the quintessential lovable rogue in the game. Uh, and I don't think it was quite the picture that Babs painted it there. And even in look, you know, in, in thinking about the 1964 final, which is the game that's really remembered from there, it was a huge win for Tipperary um, in the 64 final. I mean, 5-13 to 2-8. Again, the scoreboard tells the whole story. But at the same time, while they won those four titles in, in, in that decade, Kilkenny won three titles in the same decade. There wasn't a lot between them, really. But in 64, certainly it was a, ba- it was a bad day and a sad day for Kilkenny that they were wiped out in the end with Donny Needham scoring three goals, with Sean McLaughlin setting up goals, and with those Tipperary forwards running riot, really, in, in, in that final. Kilkenny regrouped they won the 1967 All-Ireland but this was a game that was mired in controversy really um, Jim Uh, in particular there was a nasty incident um, involving Tom Walsh young Kilkenny player Yes, there was. I remember that very well, uh, Owen. And uh, two years ago, on a visit to Kilkenny to meet up with, with Eddie Kerr, who was was and is one of my uh, heroes of the game, um, just thinking of, of the likes of Eddie Kerr and Henry Sheffield, well, DJ Carey's in there as well. So Kilkenny went from having one of the greatest hurlers ever in Eddie Kerr, succeeded by DJ Carey, succeeded by Henry Sheffield, and maybe now succeeded by TJ Reid. But of course, Tipperary have had, have, have had all theirs as well. But I, Astera was born, really, in the area early 1960s when Tom Walsh came on the scene in Kilkenny hurling and school hurling. It's, it's, it's amazing looking back on it now that it all finished for him so soon really you know in 1967 when, the, when, when it happened when he suffered the eye injury and, and lost his left eye it was removed to the Dublin Eyenear Hospital on, on the night of the game he was rushed to hospital straight after the game he was only 23 years of age um, Michael O'Hare especially at the time always had an extra frisk on of excitement in his voice when he was commentating uh, on either radio or television on Tom Walsh because of course it was the blonde hair that stood out and people remember that kind of thing 
but there was something very, very stylish at the time about Tom Walsh and his blonde hair. He really, when he came on the scene first, he looked like a young James Dean. And uh, he was a very skillful hurler. He was a fantastic minor, and they beat Tipperary uh, in 61 and 62 in both minor finals. Tom scored a goal in four in, the, in, in, in 61 and 2-2 in, in 64. So like Eddie Kerr, you know, he went straight in from school into the senior team. And they were great friends and remain friends to this day. So Tom went into the 63 final and he won that medal. He won his medal again in 1967. But of course, that was, uh, you know, that was marked by tragedy when only four minutes from the end, uh, when he was contesting a sideline ball with the defender who was on him at the time, uh, the defender's hurley came up as Tom turned into him. And uh, sadly, uh, the eye injury ended his career because, as I say, he lost the eye. It was removed that night. Um, but he got on with his life. And I had the pleasure two years ago, um, as I say, of, of vis- you know, when I was visiting Eddie Care, of meeting Tom as well. And Eddie's great friend uh, in all his life, uh, Father Tom Murphy, a man himself who scored two goals in an All-Ireland final at Parish Priest of Ballyragget in more recent years. And Tom Walsh, who became very successful then in, in, in business and accountancy, but he was a most modest and unassuming man, and he has lived his life that way. And when I met him, I found Tom Walsh from Thomastown to be a very cultured, refined man, uh, a man who still loves talking about hurling. He has never really spoken that much, I think, in public about the eye injury. He, he he loves talking about hurling. He expresses his views on hurling and the skills of hurling with not just expertise, but with the love of the game. And in a private chat we were having in Eddie's house that day, Tom spoke actually about the importance, for instance, of technique in hurling. And now Father Tommy Maher, of course, one of the greatest coaches of all time, he always put the emphasis first and foremost on technique. But I, I, Tom spoke, for instance, about why it makes a difference if you are a natural uh, right hand on top hurler, for instance. You're talking about the economy of movement and tackles what we'd call rooks almost nowadays or so. So he's never lost his love of the game. Uh, himself and Eddie are great friends. Tom lives now over in his in his native uh, Thomastown, which is, of course, the club of Ollie Walsh as well, who was the goalkeeper in, in um, 1964. And in 67, Ollie got the player of the match uh, accolade that day because they didn't have, you know, the awards that they give out now after the games or anything like that. Yeah. Ollie got the accolade that day. And from Roar in Estique, where Eddie and um, Father Tom Murphy came from, it's not that far over to Thomastown where Ollie Walsh and his namesake uh, Tom Walsh came from. So legends are everywhere in Kilkenny, but they're certainly in the Roar in the Steag and they're certainly in Thomastown. Absolutely. Well, listen, Jim, last one. Who's going to do it this weekend? Um, I think today is the day that you change your mind about who you think will win it, having been convinced maybe for the past two or three weeks that the other crowd are going to win it. Not alone do I have a strong feeling on who will win it, but I don't even have a strong feeling who will be favourites to, to win it. I think really it may come down to what a lot of people think. Really, will Seamus Callan put more on the scoreboard than TJ Reid? But then you look back on it, it's not that long ago since a young Walter Walsh from nearer, probably nearer Wexford County down there in South Kilkenny than he was from Kilkenny City. He got a, a man of the match award so it's it's just very very hard to tell this one um, I think most people feel that Tipperary will be the hardest to beat but I'd give a hesitant vote to Kilkenny just because I believe that they're not a one man forward line Uncle Jim Carney always a pleasure thanks so much and enjoy the game 
The pleasure is mine. All the best, lads. Enjoy tomorrow. Yeah, well, we, cer- we certainly will, especially after that chat. Brian is quick off the mark. Sent this in after about a second of the chat. Uncle Jim is a national treasure. I'll be in a good mood all day now. Well, I did mm. promise that, so thankfully Jim has delivered on my behalf. What a scene of him, Jim, sitting around Eddie Kerr's house talking. <laughs> was he talking about hurling grips or something? I don't know. Ah, uh, well, uh, I mean, knows? I think there was kind of like an audience with Jim Kearney that day. Like two Kenny <laughs> hurling legends walking into the house, yeah. getting out of the house all day, just paying homage. The, the big question ahead of the final tomorrow is this Tipperary team capable of producing eight scandalous minutes Murph that will mm. sicken every spectator as John D. Hickey wrote of that league final in 1968 surely they will need that to beat Kilkenny this year I don't know I mean it is kind of hard to believe listening to that uh, that back in the 1960s it would have been said I mean I saw it in a piece that Enda McAvoy wrote in the Irish Examiner about the, the rivalry in the 60s that Kilkenny for the hurlers Tipperary for the men that Tipperary basically had the whip hand and the physical stakes over right, Kilkenny right. which suffice to say no one is saying about Kilkenny teams in this millennium but uh, yeah I mean like Tipper had a defensive unit at the time more in the 50s maybe than in the 60s called Hell's Kitchen that was the full back lines <laughs> nickname which is the coolest GA nickname That's of all strong. time I don't think there's anything we can say about that but as for this week um, one thing I, I saw mentioned in the previews is that Tipperary actually are the more experienced team in this All-Ireland Final which is something that I don't think you could say about Kilkenny, that Kilkenny were the less experienced team in the Iron Final go- on, since probably 2002, that they've always had that over whoever they were playing in the All-Ireland Final, that they just knew the All-Ireland Final Day routine better than uh, their opponents did. So, I don't know, it, it, like when you weigh it all up, I'm kind of with Jim, I, I thought tip all week, this morning I woke up and in a close game, don't ever back against Kilkenny, no, come on. lack of experiencing, you're forgetting something quite important there. You're talking about players, right? Mm. What about the guy standing on the side? You know that big lad who's kind of rubbing his hands together the whole time, looking yeah. uh, kind of like an ominous presence. Few burst capillaries, baseball yeah. cap. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Looking pretty psyched up. Yeah, that guy. He's He is an, a pretty important factor. I mean, you, you just have to say John O'Dwyer, John McGrath, Dan McCormick, they all need to raise their game from what we've seen since, you know, kind of throughout July right. and August. And that would so that was the thing. Kilkenny, oh, but not by right. much. Fair enough. Uh, we've got a text in here, which I'll get to after I thank you and thank Ken. Thank you very much, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thank we you do have to go. Hope you're nicely in the mood for the All Ireland now. We'll cover whatever happens on our daily shows on the Second Captain's World Service. We invite you to join our members and get behind some independent broadcasting direct from our own studios. You can check it out at secondcaptains.com. Thanks to Mark Horgan and Simon Hick for producing the show, to Killian Down for his excellent research, to Richie McCullough on sound. Marion Fanukin is coming right up. Thank you for listening. Thanks very much to Emmett Kerwin, who I thought was absolutely fantastic. Emmett Kerwin for Taoiseach comes in the final text of the day. There you go. Thanks for listening again. Enjoy the All Ireland. Take care.